Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. By late 1942, Australian troops had successfully forced the Japanese back beyond Kokoda Village and down onto the northern plains of New Guinea. The Japanese have no intentions of abandoning their hold on the northern beachheads. Hopefully, they thought, if they could deal successfully with the Americans in the Solomon Islands, then they'll need these beachheads from which to launch another assault across the Owen Stanleys and finally achieve the capture of Port Moresby. For the Australians and their newly arrived American colleagues, those beachheads needed to be cleared in order for the Allies to begin the task of retaking the vital positions of Leigh and Salamoa and Finchhaven and then to finally retake the entirety of the Huon Peninsula. With two very determined forces coming together, the Battle of the Beachheads is going to be hard fought and bloody. Welcome to the Australian Military History Podcast, a podcast dedicated to Australian servicemen and women covering events, units and personalities from the Boer War through to the modern day. G'day everyone, welcome back. Yes, I know, we've covered the first stage of the Kokoda campaign with the Japanese push to Port Moresby, and now we're covering the final stage, the Battles of Buna, Gona and San Ananda. What about the middle bit? I hear you wail in exasperation at my lack of chronological narration. The bit where the Australians push the Japanese back over the Owen Stanleys. Well, on this occasion, and only this one, I've got a good reason for not delivering to you the entirety of the Kokoda campaign in the correct order. And the people to blame for it this time around are those lovely people at History Guild, who have once again been kind enough to sponsor this episode. You see, on the 12th of November, in the year of His Majesty 2022, it's His Majesty now, History Guild will be sponsoring the Bloody Beachheads, the Battle of Buna, Gona and San Anana Conference, along with Military History and Heritage Victoria. If you are paying attention during the episodes on Three Squadron and Ruin Ridge, you'll know that History Guild is a must-visit website for anyone who is interested in history. Not just military history, and not only Australian, although in fairness, Australian military history has to be the most interesting topic, doesn't it? Doesn't it? Anyway, whatever you're into, you are sure to find something on the History Guild website. Whether you're after a podcast, an article, blog posts, or links to longer articles, go and check out History Guild at historyguild.org. And if you happen to be in sunny Melbourne on the 12th of November, and reckon you'd like to pop into the aforementioned conference, then head over to mhhv.org.au and book yourself a ticket. Links to both websites will be in the show notes and on the Australian Military History Podcast website. So, let's do this thing. The Battle of the Beachheads is a long and complicated topic, so I'll be breaking it up into two episodes. This first episode will focus on the first phase of the fighting, which was the struggle just to get to the beachheads. I'll give a brief account of the American push at Boona, just to get everything into context. Then we'll cover the Battle of San Ananda Track, which gave the Allies a taste of just how hard the Japanese were going to fight to maintain their foothold in New Guinea. By way of providing a bit of context when it comes to the beachhead battles, I'll give a brief description of the preceding events for those who may be wondering why there are Japanese on the northern beaches of New Guinea and why the Australians and Americans were so keen to remove them. As part of Japan's grand strategy, the Japanese Imperial Army pushed south in all haste to capture the strategically important locations within the Pacific Rim, 
The Philippines, Malaya and Singapore had all fallen in double-quick time, but without control of New Guinea and the Solomon Islands, these conquests wouldn't provide the ring of defences that the grand strategy demanded. The quickest, and so they thought easiest, way to take New Guinea was to seize the capital of Port Moresby on the southern side of the island. Their first attempt to achieve this was thwarted at the Battle of Milne Bay, so they had to have a bit of a rethink. The next best option was to land on the northern part of the island and come into Port Moresby from the north. They landed their forces on the beaches near the villages of Boona, Gona and San Ananda. They expected to make the journey over the forbidding Owen Stanley Ranges in only 10 days. If you tune in to the episodes on the 39th Militia Battalion and Ishirava to Iori Baiwa, you'll know that due to the textbook fighting withdrawal conducted by the Australians, the Japanese didn't see the lights of Port Moresby until the end of September, by which time they were too weak and the supply lines were too long to support any further attempt to take Port Moresby. The long Japanese retreat began. The reinforced and replenished Australian forces chased the Japanese back across the Owen Stanleys and fought a major battle at Oivy, where the Owen Stanleys gave way to the coastal plains, more or less. I'll cover that phase of the campaign in the not-too-distant future. The Japanese were defeated at Oivy, and what had been an orderly withdrawal up to that point became a rout, and the Japanese forces fell back towards their secure beachhead locations. Bitter experience had taught the Australians that to rush onwards in pursuit was not a good idea. Even a beaten and retreating Japanese army was still capable of inflicting losses on unwary enemy troops. The obvious downside to this caution was that it gave the Japanese time to strengthen the already formidable defences around Bunagona and San Ananda. So, in a nutshell, that's how we got here. Having taken care of the hard part of stopping and pushing the Japanese back, the Australians were finally joined by their American comrades for this final part of the campaign. The US 32nd Division and 41st Division had finally arrived. The Australian 7th Division, under the command of General George Vasey, is where I'll be focusing most of our attention, but I'll be sure to give the Yanks a mention whenever it is relevant. It's also important to remember at this stage that General, I look good in a pair of sunglasses, MacArthur, had quite a poor opinion of the Australian troops, who had thus far shouldered the bulk of the fighting in New Guinea. He had informed the American Joint Chiefs of Staff that, quote, the Australians have proven themselves unable to match the enemy in jungle fighting. Aggressive leadership is lacking. End quote. There was a general attitude in MacArthur's office that during the pushback over the Owen Stanleys, the 7th Division weren't advancing fast enough. He ordered Blamey to inform Brigadier Allen of his feelings. In the message to Allen, Blamey advised that, quote again, General MacArthur considers that the light casualties indicate no serious effort to displace the enemy. You will attack with all speed at each point of resistance. End quote. In a nutshell, MacArthur reckoned they weren't trying hard enough because not enough of them were getting killed. At this stage of the war, MacArthur was also given complete control over the media as it related to this theatre of operations. He saw an opportunity for a bit of shameless self-promotion and often released reports to the US press to indicate that he was leading this war from the front despite being a couple of thousand miles away in Brisbane or Melbourne. When it came to advising of the victories at Milne Bay and Kokoda, he dressed them up as Allied victories, despite the fact that the only Allies involved were Australian. It was an anathema to him to give credit to any troops other than Americans. He needed his superiors and the US public to believe that only he and his Americans could fight this war in the Pacific. But as much as he controlled the narrative, one thing he couldn't control was the lack of any concrete evidence of American involvement. There were no American casualty lists, no medals being won, no after-action reports. He needed something to give truth to the BS he'd been sending out. And so Boona, Gona and San Ananda was going to be where the American army would shine bright and MacArthur would be exalted as the best ever general there ever was. Or something like that, anyway. 
I mention this because over the course of these battles, it will become apparent that it was in fact MacArthur's Americans who weren't up to the task, and it was the Australians who proved themselves to be superior. Just something to keep in the back of your mind while we work through this. The other factor that needs to be covered is the other enemy. New Guinea itself was tough on soldiers of both sides. Disease was rampant, malaria, scrub typhus, dysentery, tropical ulcers and any other debilitating ailments sapped the strength of all combatants. The Americans were fresh and so hadn't suffered the effects of disease yet. But the Australians had been fighting this campaign for months. Their battalions were reduced to around half strength and many of those still carrying a rifle would have been confined to hospital beds under any other circumstances. But here they were, still stomping around in the bush, fighting Japanese soldiers. And the terrain. We've probably all seen video footage and photos of the hellish mountain terrain of the Owen Stanley Range, and we'll think to ourselves that getting out of that and down onto the flat coastal plains would have been a godsend. But no. Sure, it wasn't thick, enclosed jungle with a single muddy track carrying thousands of troops up and down impossibly steep slopes. But for the most part, it was flat, mosquito-infested swampland. Tall kunai grass, which grew to about 2 metres and had wickedly sharp edges, trapped the heat and humidity, so as the troops forced their way through, their strength was sapped under the oppressive conditions. Within that grassy environment, the temperature at that time of the year would regularly get up to around 50 degrees Celsius. Not to mention that the kunai was so thick that an entire Japanese company could be lying quietly 10 metres away, and you'd never know. Rivers and creeks crossed the plains, carrying water down from the Owen Stanleys to the sea. Fanning out into smaller creeks, they cut across the narrow coastal plain, which at its widest was only a few hundred yards between the beaches and the swamp. The water table was only a couple of feet below the surface, which meant that weapons pits couldn't be dug down far enough to give dry protection to soldiers. And, just to add to these generally terrible conditions, November and December is the wet season in the tropics. Tropical monsoon storms usually pelted the area in the afternoon and was preceded by even more oppressive humidity to the point where it felt like the troops were breathing water. The storms could dump anywhere up to 250 millimetres of rain in just a couple of hours. This obviously ensured that the few tracks through the swamps soon became as thick and boggy as anything the Kokoda track had thrown at the Australians. So all in all, not exactly the time, place or conditions which you would choose to conduct a battle if you had any say in the matter. Which of course, the troops did not. And what of the Japanese? Well, they may have been defeated and pushed back, but there were still thousands of them defending the beachheads. In the Bunagona region, the retreating Japanese troops bolstered the numbers of army and navy troops who had been maintaining the area since the first landing. They were also joined by reinforcements of fresh troops, and so it was estimated at the commencement of the battle, 11,000 to 12,000 troops were defending the beaches. Of these troops, two to 2,500 were surrounding Buna, Gona was defended by eight to 900, and somewhere between four and 5,500 were in San Ananda. On the San Ananda track were a further 17 to 1800. Sure, they were outnumbered by the combined Australian and US forces, but in warfare the advantage always lies with the defenders. As a rule of thumb, to be relatively sure of a successful attack, the attacking force should outnumber the defenders by at least 3 to 1. The Allies only outnumbered the Japanese by about 2 to 1, and the Japanese have been given months to prepare their defensive positions. Reinforced bunkers have been constructed around the perimeters and in depth. Each bunker covered the bunkers to either side and some were interconnected which meant troops could be transferred to the critical points of the fight in relative safety. The Japanese had made perfect use of the terrain when sighting their bunkers, ensuring that any attacking force would be funneled into killing zones. The bunkers were strong enough to withstand just about anything short of a direct hit by artillery. They were going to be tough to take. So we'll move on to the actual fighting. Now, there are a lot of units involved in this fight, 
And I realise it can get confusing and all cluttered up with battalions and brigades, US units and Australian units taking over from each other. So rather than state which battalions are where or which brigade is operating in which area, I will, as much as possible, at least after the initial mention, just keep it to Australians and Americans. If a particular individual is warranted a mention, or I quote something from a unit diary, I'll mention the unit, but that should be about it, hopefully. So the battle officially kicked off when, on the 16th of November 1942, the 7th Australian Division crossed the Kamusi River in pursuit of the fleeing Japanese. The Kamusi is about 65 kilometres from the beachheads. After crossing the river, the 25th Brigade took a bit of a left turn and headed towards Gona, while the 16th continued more or less straight ahead towards San Ananda. Joining the 16th Brigade was a detachment of Americans from the 126th Regiment under direct control of the 7th Division. But it wasn't until the 19th that the first contacts were made with the defending Japanese. The American 32nd Division approached from the south and made contact with the enemy troops as they moved into the Boona area. The American commander, Harding, wanted to seize the landing strip and the plantation as soon as possible and ordered his troops to attack. At the same time, the Australians made contact at Gona and then on San Ananda track the following day. The going had been relatively easy up to this point, well, as easy as it could have been given the conditions, but the Allies had now reached the well-prepared defences of the beachheads. Generally speaking, the best way to attack a fixed position such as those confronting the troops was through fire and movement, with close support from heavy weapons. But the terrain, combined with the problems of getting heavy equipment into the field, pretty much negated any chance of this type of fighting. The 2nd 25th Battalion Diary gives a pretty good description of what faced the Allied troops across the entire front. I shall quote, 0700, moved through heavy mud and contacted patrol of the 2nd 33rd Australian Infantry Battalion. This patrol was in light contact with the enemy. Moving through this patrol, B Company had barely cleared the patrol area by 100 yards when they encountered rifle fire. They moved off the track to left and right and CO swung Headquarters Company out of the left rear and E Company out to the right rear. B Company made about 300 yards in 10 minutes, killing four. A Company pushed through B astride the track. C Company pushed out to the left flank to answer fire coming from that quarter and D Company pushed out to the right flank to answer fire from that flank. Companies made slow progress, one company covering the other. 1340, Captain Thorne wounded. C, Headquarters, E and A Companies pushed on past D and were pinned down by snipers at 1430. C Company swung to the left and endeavoured to clear Headquarters front. A platoon of E Company, meanwhile, had been heard on the right flank in the distance. Considerable automatic fire indicated C Company's push forward. This fire was intense and was followed by a period of quiet. C and Headquarters Company had both crossed a small creek on their front, but on reaching the village clearing were pinned down by heavy rifle fire. Lieutenant Phelps reported back at 1630 and stated he had climbed a tree in his area and had seen the sea a few hundred yards ahead, but his progress forward was stopped by heavy rifle fire from left and right. Also, there was a considerable enemy carrying activity along the waterfront. He had his own snipers operating from trees and had a counter for 12 Japs. Captain Thorne died in the late afternoon. As there seemed no prospect of pushing out the enemy with the forces available, Lieutenant Colonel Miller disposed his forces. Our casualties for the day... One officer killed and two wounded, and 30 other ranks wounded. End quote. So that was just one day for one battalion. It was a similar story across the battlefront. Light contact was made in the morning, but the further the Allies pushed forward, the stiffer the resistance became. Fire was coming from the flanks and in front, and snipers were taking a toll. By the end of the day, the Allies could do little more than just dig in where they were and prepare to recommence hostilities the next day after they had been resupplied with food, water, and ammunition. So with that example of the type of action encountered, let's head to the southwest and spend a minute or two on the American push towards Boona. 
Now this attack lasted a good couple of months and so obviously this is going to be a very truncated version. If you're interested in the finer details of this area of operations, then there are plenty of references on the intertubes which you can peruse at your leisure. The attack on Buna was a three-pronged advance. Two battalions of the US 32nd Division forked out at the village of Dobadura to the south with one battalion heading to the west of Buna village and the other headed towards the new airstrip to the southeast. A third battalion made its approach along the coastline, aiming at the Europa plantation on the coast. There is a map on the website which shows the advances of all the Allied units, and I suggest you go and check it out. It may help you to get some ducks in rows if you're not in any way familiar with the North New Guinea coastline. The American attack on the 19th didn't go too well. In fairness, for many this was their first involvement in the shooting war, and the supply situation hadn't helped either. The Japanese still held the coastal landing areas, and so any supplies still had to come from the south. The Air Force could bring rations and ammunition only so far, meaning it had to move in the time-honoured, by this stage, New Guinea fashion. Native carriers had to bring it in by hand across muddy and boggy tracks. The troops had been on emergency rations for days and were hungry and tired. They were confident going in though, but their inexperience with these conditions soon had them confused and easy pickings for the Japanese. Unable to pinpoint exactly where their enemy was, they felt as though they were everywhere. Communications broke down and the advance ground to a halt. One American historian recorded the situation thusly. Out of rations, and with the greater part of its ammunition used up, the 1st Battalion ended the day a badly shaken outfit. The troops had entered the battle joking and laughing, and sure of an easy victory. Now they were dazed and taken aback by the mauling they had received at the hands of the Japanese. End quote. By the 21st, the supply situation was somewhat improved with the completion of an airstrip in Dobadura, but the American infantry was still woefully short on the one thing they desperately needed, heavy fire support. The Air Force had dropped a few shells here and there, but the close nature of the terrain meant that signalling to the Air Force from the ground was near impossible, and so no Japanese position could be directly targeted. Normally this problem would be overcome by artillery, but they had none at this point. A barge carrying the 2nd 5th Field Regiment's guns had been sunk. Captain Mueller managed to salvage a couple of 25-pounders, which his men dragged into position on the 22nd, but the two guns were never going to be able to provide the amount of fire support needed. By 30th of November, the American historian reported, The men on both the Urbana and Warren fronts were tired and listless. They had not been sufficiently hardened for jungle operations and, with a few exceptions, had not been fresh when they reached the combat zone. Thrown into battle in an exhausted state, most of them had had no chance to rest since. The troops were half-starved. Most of them had been living on short rations for weeks and their food intake since the fighting began had averaged about a third of a sea ration per day just enough to sustain life. They were shaggy and bearded and their clothes were ragged. Their feet were swollen and in bad shape. Their shoes, which had shrunk in the wet, often had to be cut away so that troops could even get their feet into them. Morale was low. Instead of being met, as they had been led to expect, by a few hundred sick and starving Japanese, they found themselves facing apparently large numbers of fresh, well-fed, well-armed troops in seemingly impregnable positions, against whom in almost two weeks of fighting, they had failed to score even one noteworthy success. End quote. Hardly a ringing endorsement for the system that was supposed to prepare these men for war. Speaking of which, what did the big kahuna have to say about this? Did he blame the rushed manner in which the battle was forced onto his troops? Did he blame the supply chain which should have kept his men fed and equipped with all they needed? Of course not. In his mind, the only conceivable cause for this lack of progress has to be due to the lack of fighting spirit of the men on the pointy end. He called in Bob Eichelberger to meet him all the way back in Port Moresby. I'll let Bob tell the story. Bob, said General MacArthur in a grim voice, I'm putting you in command at Boona. 
Relieve Harding. I am sending you in, Bob, and I want you to remove all officers who won't fight. Relieve regimental and battalion commanders. If necessary, put sergeants in charge of battalions and corporals in charge of companies. Anyone who will fight. Time is of the essence. The Japs may reinforce any night. General MacArthur strode down the breezy veranda again. He said he had reports that American soldiers were throwing away their weapons and running from the enemy. Then he stopped short and spoke with emphasis. He wanted no misunderstandings about my assignment. Bob, he said, I want you to take Boona, or not come back alive. He paused a moment and then, without looking at Byers, pointed a finger, and that goes for your Chief of Staff too. Do you understand? End quote. I believe I may have made my feelings on MacArthur known before, but this takes the cake. Half-starved and ill-supplied troops can't fight effectively, no matter how much the boss would really like them to. Then, to sack low-level commanders and think that will solve the problem is ridiculous. Far better to sack those who are running the supply chain. But anyway. In the end, it took the Americans the better part of a month to advance into Buna. They had suffered heavy casualties, but had learned some valuable lessons on how to fight the Japanese. Or more accurately, how not to fight the Japanese. By mid-December, they were buoyed by the knowledge that the experienced Australians of the 18th Brigade had arrived to provide assistance in taking the Buna government station. That part of the fight is the culmination of the Buna going to battle, and we'll get to that bit at the end of the next episode. But for now, it's time to head back to the Australian advance in the west, specifically the push by the 16th Brigade towards San Ananda and the Battle of the San Ananda Track. On 20th of September, and with reports stating that Australians were closing in on Gona and the Americans were beginning their attack at Buna, Lieutenant Colonel Cullen's battalion took the lead of the Australian advance along the track. There had been very little contact up to this point, and confidence was high. Just before 9am, the battalion broke out of the bush into the open Kunai patch and almost immediately came under heavy fire. Cullen knew pretty much straight away that they had come across a formidable defensive position. Leaving his headquarters on the edge of the bush, he hurried forward and spoke with Captain Burrell of the leading company. He ordered Burrell to maintain his push forward, and then he ordered Captain Cattens to lead his company on a flanking movement to come in on the Japanese left. But shortly thereafter, Cullen ordered Cattens to hand his company over to Captain Pryor and then to take command of the remaining two companies. He was to take these two companies, approximately 90 men, and swing wide, using the tree line for cover as much as possible, and attempt to get in behind the Japanese position. As Cattens made his move, Burrell continued his advance, albeit at a much reduced pace. Pryor moved around Burrell's company and began his push. They broke through the Japanese outposts, but as they got closer to the main force, their progress was halted. One rifleman was severely wounded and lying under heavy fire. Company Quartermaster Sergeant Miller ran out to the wounded man and brought him back under cover. Later, a corporal was shot in the stomach. He was lying in a bare patch of ground with murderous crossfire pouring over him. Miller again went forward and gave the corporal some morphine and then came back under cover. He made a makeshift stretcher and with Corporal Kemsley went back to get the wounded corporal. Somehow both men made it back unscathed with the dying man. Not quite done yet, late in the afternoon, Miller again risked his life to bring in a wounded man. Such displays of bravery encouraged the men of Prize Company to keep fighting. But any significant advance along the main route for that day had been checked. To Cullen's relief, Lieutenant Colonel Hutchinson had brought his battalion forward to assist Cullen. Two companies were sent to assist Pryor, but darkness had fallen before they could do anything more than just make contact. Cattens was still making his way around the flank, and when heavy firing was heard just around dusk, Cullen knew that Cattens and his men were making their attack. Cattens' men had stealthily made their way to the Japanese perimeter. Where the bush began to thin out, they could see Japanese troops sitting around cooking fires. They could also see a lone mountain gun 
which had been causing some issues for the main force. The group of 90 men was too small to be able to be split up and to take out the gun, while the other group took on the troops. Cattens decided that the troops were the main priority, and they would get the gun only if an opportunity presented itself. Cattens ordered his men into extended line and began their advance. They managed to get to within 50 yards of the Japanese before they were seen. As one, the Australians opened up and ran straight for the centre of the main position. The defenders were shocked at the speed of the attack, but some managed to get behind their machine guns and cut down many of the Australians. But the momentum of the attack was too much, and the attackers fought viciously in among the Japanese troops. Many of the defenders simply jumped up and ran for the safety of the bush. That first assault accounted for more than 80 enemy troops, but they had paid a heavy price themselves. They had lost five of their ten officers and a handful of other ranks. But having pushed far into the Japanese position, they had no time for counting their losses. They set about developing some kind of a defensive position, digging deep pits from which they would have to hold off any Japanese counterattack. The attack came in at dawn the following day. Obviously the Japanese knew the position well. They had, after all, owned it for quite a while before Cattens and his men took it. They came in from three sides, but all the attacks were broken up. The Australians fought hard for a number of reasons, but mostly because they had no other choice. They had penetrated so far into the Japanese position that there was no chance of escape. They literally had to fight off the Japanese or die. The attacks were kept up all day. The Australian wounded were housed between two large roots of a tree, which afforded only psychological protection. Many were wounded again or killed outright during the day's fighting. Cullen had sent more men to locate and reinforce Cattens, but it wasn't until early morning of the 22nd that the relief was finally made. Of the 91 men of Catton's force, 5 officers and 26 men had been killed, with a further 2 officers and 34 wounded, leaving only 24 men unscathed by their little epic in amongst the Japanese. But it had been worth it. The Japanese had been forced to adjust their perimeter and their defence structure had been weakened. But there was still no way they were going to just give up the position. The Australians were going to have to do more than merely take a little bite out of the Japanese defence. The fighting continued over the next couple of days without much movement one way or the other. The two big factors which occurred during this time was the arrival of a couple of companies from the US 126th Regiment, and some of these men were sent to support Pryor and his companies on the Allied right, and while the remainder, arriving the following day, were ordered to head out to the left and come in behind the Japanese position. But by far the more important addition was the creation of an airstrip close to the battlefield. This airfield, hacked out of the Kunai patch by hand, allowed four field guns to be brought into the fight. By 5pm on the 23rd, the guns had fired their registration shots and would be able to add their support to the manoeuvres of the following day. Airstrikes and artillery were used against the Japanese on the 24th, but little movement occurred on the ground. It wasn't until the 25th that the Americans began their push, but heavy machine gun and mortar fire brought that attack to a halt. An Australian movement was similarly checked, and the front settled into four more days of reorganisation and regrouping. Some units were unsure of exactly where they were. The Americans thought they were 350 yards further ahead than they actually were. As you can imagine, not knowing the exact location of all your forces spread out over a large area is quite a dangerous prospect. In those kinds of conditions, you could be shooting at your own side without knowing it. And so, as much as General Vasey was chafing at the slow progress, the time to reorganise was necessary. But it did also have another downside. Remember that these men were half-starved and suffering diseases before the battle even started. This delay only exacerbated the losses due to sickness. Brigadier Lloyd estimated that his force was down to just over a thousand men capable of sustaining a prolonged effort. Regardless, it wasn't until the 30th that things started moving again. After a preliminary barrage of artillery and machine guns, 
the Americans went forward on the right of the track, and for a while it appeared that some intense fighting was taking place, but it soon died down into sporadic firing and not much else. The Australians thought maybe the attackers had broken through, or had simply settled in to regroup, and so they waited. But as the day drew on, it became clear that the American attack had been stopped dead in its tracks, as though it had been swallowed up by the bush. A simultaneous attack on the left went somewhat better. Other elements of the US 126th Regiment had spent the previous few days trying to push into the Japanese rear. On the 30th, at about the same time that the attack on the right was being decimated, Major Bond led his men, with support from Australian artillery and an anti-tank company, and recommenced their push. The Japanese flank gave way after a short but brutal fight in which Bond was severely wounded. Despite this, his men pushed on and by 5pm they reached a Japanese position astride the main track. Not wasting any time, Captain Shirley led a bayonet charge which eventually managed to shift the Japanese, but at a heavy cost to the Americans. It had taken them a week to achieve, but that American right flank movement had finally cut across the San Ananda track and set up what would become known as Huggins Roadblock. Now, I don't say this bit to be critical of the American troops. They fought as well as their training had allowed them. But the Americans' left flank attack encountered much the same conditions as Catton's attack had earlier in the week. Same terrain, same enemy. Catton's and his men had achieved their objective in the course of 24 hours. The Americans took nine days. As I say, that's not a slight on the American troops, but it does show just how unprepared and poorly trained they were for this kind of warfare, and the responsibility for that has to lie with higher command. But despite all this, by the start of December, around two weeks into the drive towards San Ananda, the Allied positions hadn't improved by any great amount. They were still situated in a bit of a horseshoe shape around the main Japanese position they had encountered back on the 20th of November. Sure, they'd taken a couple of chunks out of it, and Huggins' roadblock was in place, but that's not much to show for two weeks' worth of fighting. Despite taking nine days to cut the track, the Americans at Huggins' roadblock began what would be days of dogged defence to hold on to what they had gained. The Japanese put in attack after attack from all around the position. The roadblock was set up on clear ground in a rough oval shape. Around the edges, though, was thick bush, which allowed the Japanese to gather troops at just about any point along the perimeter without being seen. The defenders had to be able to switch their fire to any point at a moment's notice, something which they were able to do quite well. But out there on their own, they weren't going to win the war. They were exposed, and supply was a precarious prospect. The position was only important if the main force could link up and thereby cut off the supply route to the main enemy force. To achieve this, the American commander, Colonel Tomlinson, proposed another strong push down the right flank. Major Zeef led the attack and did succeed in taking a fair patch of ground, but he had suffered so many casualties in the process that he could advance no further. A supporting attack also went in at the same time, over the ground which had swallowed the American attack on the 30th, but again this attack was stopped dead. It was at this stage that MacArthur had reorganised his command as mentioned before. Tomlinson returned to his American division, leaving Baitke as the highest ranking American and under the command of Brigadier Lloyd. Another American attack was planned for the 5th of December. And so, at 7.15 on the morning of the 5th, the assault recommenced. By 20 to 10, a report was received that the attack had gone to ground, and at 11.30, the commander on the ground reported, quote, Troops are somewhat disorganised. They had evidently become scattered in the thick undergrowth, and it was taking some time to get reorganised. They had passed through only one vacated enemy position, an LMG, light machine gun, a pit with timber overhead cover but were now held up by a gun approximately 50 yards to his front, whilst there was an LMG slightly further back and one on his right flank. End quote. Once again, the attempt to reach Huggins had failed. 
the lack of progress of the Americans, despite repeated attempts, began to worry the American command. General Willoughby went forward to observe the 5th of December attack and didn't like what he saw. On his return, he spoke to Lieutenant McDougall and asked the Australian what he thought of their comrades' fighting abilities. It's not recorded exactly what was said, but apparently McDougall was courteous but blunt about what he thought. And, having witnessed his troops in action that day, Willoughby thoroughly agreed. After this failed attack, the Battle of San Hernando Track entered its third phase. The first had been the Australians of the 16th Brigade throwing themselves at the Japanese, but with their strength fading fast due to the prolonged campaign across the Owen Stanleys, the Americans had been sent in to do their part, with the only major success being the establishment of the beleaguered force at Huggins Roadblock. Now it was the turn of the Australian 30th Brigade, mostly untried in combat. The 49th Battalion had been in Port Moresby since the outbreak of war with Japan, but they were a militia unit and their war to this point had been manning the defences of the capital. The other battalion was the composite 55th, 53rd Battalion. Again, both were militia battalions, the 55th having much the same war as the 49th. And if you remember back to the episodes on the Japanese advance across the Owen Stanleys, you may remember that the 53rd did not give a good account of itself. That's not to say the militia battalions were no good. The other battalion from this brigade was the magnificent 39th, which pretty much saved the day on the Kakata track. But at this point, they were involved in the attack on Gona, which we'll get to. In brief, these militia units had been redesignated as AIF units. The men were given the option to transfer to their AIF, but they would always have the letter M attached to their regimental number to denote that they were initially militia. This caused a bit of angst among the troops. It kind of inferred that they were, and always would be, inferior. Some refused to transfer and were sent to work in service unit. You'd have to think that with a bit more sensitivity to these men's feelings, the knobs may have ended up with a better transfer rate. But that's the military for you. The 30th Brigade relieved the exhausted men of the 16th on the 6th of December. Since crossing the Kamusi River in early November, the 16th had lost 13 officers and 143 men in action, and 18 officers and 344 men through illness. One officer recorded, All had illnesses of one kind or another, mostly malaria. The physical hardships of the campaign and the prolonged lack of sufficient food had told on everyone. It was physical effort enough to walk around in safety at battalion headquarters. It required incomparable morale to stick day to day in the rifle company positions. Another recorded, One man arrived at the RAP looking very sick. The MO said, How do you feel? Not as hot as it was last night, Doc. The MO then took his temperature. It was 106.2. This man had walked for one and a half hours to reach the RAP. End quote. For those of us fluent in the metric system, 106.2 degrees Fahrenheit is just over 41 degrees Celsius. Normal body temperature is 37 degrees. No wonder they were buggered. So now it was the turn of the 30th Brigade, and on the morning of the 7th, the 49th Battalion pulled back to allow the artillery to fire a few ranging shots and then move forward at about 9.45am. Almost immediately, the Japanese began to inflict heavy casualties. They pushed on, but in the thick scrub, they became slightly disoriented and pushed too far to the right. They eventually ran out of steam and went to ground. Colonel Kessels, the 49th CO, tried to coordinate his other battalions to come in alongside the 49th, but communications were poor. He only had telephones which needed the cable to be run out to the frontline units. Obviously, this was a bit difficult to do with the enemy firing on the signallers. And, even if they did manage to get a line through, it was usually cut by mortar fire shortly thereafter. The battalions did the best they could, but in the face of heavy fire, the whole first phase of the attack went to ground with an advance of only 800 yards. One company was reduced to 35 men out of the 98 they had started the day with. 
The second phase was not necessarily dependent on the first phase being successful, and so the 55th, 53rd Battalion were given the uncomplicated orders to attack enemy positions astride the road. Even more simple were the orders to advance on a bearing of 20 degrees and to take out three machine guns near, quote, the big white tree. Due to their inexperience, as soon as the enemy fire began, the Australians bunched up into small groups, possibly the worst thing you can do in such circumstances. It made a beautiful target for enemy machine gunners and snipers. They only managed to advance about 100 yards before nightfall and suffered heavy casualties in the process. It soon became pretty clear that with the 49th Battalion's failure earlier in the day and the 55th, 53rd's dismal advance, the day was lost and those troops who could began to fall back. They were gathered into groups and deployed into defensive positions. The front had once again settled into stalemate. And it just goes to show that, just like the American attack, sending inexperienced troops into such conditions was a recipe for failure. The top knobs agreed that for the immediate future, the best that could be expected of the troops was stalk and consolidate tactics. Small units patrolling and inflicting casualties where they could, but no full-scale attacks. In Brigadier Porter's words, his intentions were to, quote, position maximum troops on present front line for purposes of security and holding frontally, to maintain maximum troops in hand for mobile defence and conservation of health and energy, end quote. Essentially, keep only the number of men at the front required to hold it. Keep only the amount of men required for defensive purposes if the Japanese put in an attack and to hold the remainder out of the line so they could recuperate. The Air Force put in some heavy strikes on the Japanese positions, but it was difficult to tell exactly where the strong points were and so the strikes, although they looked and sounded impressive, actually had little effect. So basically, as it had at Buna, the Allied attacks had stalled for the time being. Attempts to get troops to act aggressively were mostly unsuccessful as the 55th, 53rd Battalion diary noted, had great difficulty in moving troops forward whilst dense undergrowth made maintenance of control and direction difficult. Troops were prone to go to ground and thus prevented themselves from being extricated by fire and movement. The only group of men still putting up a fight were the Americans at Huggins Roadblock, but they'd been hard at it for days. Their numbers were dwindling and their ammunition was running out despite one successful attempt at resupply. General Vasey had a dilemma on his hands. Maintaining the roadblock would be costly as numerous attempts to resupply had resulted in the loss of the supply parties. But to abandon the ground would mean that it would need to be recaptured, possibly with even greater loss. It was decided that those men would just have to hold on as there was no force within the area that was capable of mounting any offensive action. The Japanese had successfully halted this attempt to get to Senananda. The Allies could only stop and see how things developed further to the west at Gona. But that, my friends, is a story for the next episode. I'll catch you then. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If so, feel free to leave a comment on the website at australianmilitaryhistorypodcast.com or on Instagram under AMH Podcast or on Facebook. Also, apparently leaving a review on iTunes helps more people to find the podcast, so it would be very much appreciated if you can head over to iTunes and leave a review and a comment so that more people can learn about the amazing history of Australia at Arms. And remember, if there's any aspect of our military history which you would like to hear about, drop me a line at amhp dot media at gmail.com thank you for listening to the australian military history podcast hey it's danny pellegrino from everything iconic ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget check out quince they've got all the good stuff shirts and polos activewear and fine leather goods all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands and the best part 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 